Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Slippery Slope Edition. I'm Shane Harris of Daily Beast. Fitting title. It is rainy today. Quite slippery outside. It, it's slippery all over. It's, it's slippery all over the world. And we haven't seen the sun in DC in a few days. A long time. It's been since Thanksgiving, I think. That was the last really nice sunny day that we had. It's been slippery and rainy, and we, I guess we didn't there, give enough thanks. We did not give God enough thanks. took away the sun. It's true. It's true. And meanwhile, our boots on the ground are slipping and sliding. They are sliding way down that slope. You thought we meant Washington. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we're going to get to that in the show today. I'm, of course, joined, as always, by my good friends Tamara Kaufman with us. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And Ben with us. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Shane. It's nice to see you both. And um, our, we have, do we have a special guest today? We don't have a special guest today. No, no special guest. It's just the three of us. Yeah. It's kind, it's of, kind, of, kind of cozy. cozy just yeah. the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last time you will ever hear me sing on this podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about slippery slopes uh, in Iraq and maybe elsewhere. Uh, President Obama is sending 200 more special operations forces to Iraq to combat ISIS. China seems to be hacking the U.S. less. How is that possible? And a Taliban ally is holding an American man hostage. Plus, we'll have object lessons. Um, ben, what, or no, tomorrow, we're going to start off with your wordplay, uh, the slippery slopes uh, of, in the Middle East. Why don't you take, us, take it off? Sure. So this morning's Washington Post has a story jumping off from Secretary of Defense Ash Carter's congressional testimony yesterday, in which he announced that the U.S. would be sending 200 additional special operators into northern Iraq. Apparently, they're going to be based around Erbil in Kurdistan. Uh, and unlike the other U.S. troops in Iraq that are in an advising role, uh, these guys are going to be in a role that will involve direct missions uh, with a focus on intelligence gathering. Now, the Post also reports uh, that the Pentagon is going to be sending 50 special operators into northern Syria. Huh. So just down the road. Just down the road. So, And this is all part of uh, the administration's effort to escalate its anti-ISIS uh, activities and try and get more um, precise targeting, to try and get more intelligence, to be more effective in the military campaign against ISIS. But I think we have to kind of look at the trajectory here. In August 2014, when President Obama announced that U.S. forces were going to return to Iraq because ISIS presented a novel and urgent security threat, he, he sent about a 1,000 uh, advisors to assess and advise the Iraqi military. They quickly decided that was not enough. They've been putting in more troops. There are about 3,500 American troops in Iraq now, and we're adding another 250 in Syria. And these 250, if they're going to be engaged in direct operations, are going to come under fire. Some of them may die. 
uh, as we had one special operator killed in a hostage rescue operation last month. And so slip I slide exactly <laughs> slip sliding away. We're all singing today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I'm the, not going to sing. I it's the slippery slope. Right? Right? It's the yeah. slippery slope edition. Yeah. So yeah, we are sliding down that slope. It, it's getting greasier all the time. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, it, it's, incre- it, I, I'm tempted to say increasingly, hard to deny that we have boots on the ground. We have boots on the ground. I mean, come on. There are 3,500 forces on the ground, some of which will be engaging in unilateral combat. Now, right. Exactly. And, you know, and I think that what, what, it was interesting. Charlie Rose interviewed Hillary Clinton this week and asked her, would you commit ground forces uh, to the fight against ISIS, <clears throat> U.S. ground forces? And she said, you know, I'm not taking any option off the table, but I would prefer to fight them in the air. I'd prefer to fight them in cyberspace. I'd prefer to combat their financing, all these places where we can lead and dominate. She I'm, she even said it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which we would have massive ground forces, right? Didn't right, she but it's like, like here's, here's the scenario. Wait a year from now <laughs> when, when you're about to be possibly elected president, and there's going to be a lot of these forces on the ground. I mean, it, it, it's it's fat, I mean, it's... Her, whoever the next Republic, the president is going to be, their foreign policy and their engagement in Syria and Iraq is being made up to some degree for them. Right. And, you know, you're going to get into this situation where we, uh, in order to keep being in denial about this, we start doing things like changing the footwear of, of our special <laughs> operators. They'll be wearing sandals, They'll not be wearing, boots. So they will there not are be no wearing, boots on the ground. No boots on the ground. Very light footprint. Birkenstocks. <laughs> Um, no, I, look, I mean, you're right that the the pressure of um, of events and particularly, I think, the the galvanizing impact of the Paris attacks and the, the global security threat that um, countries perceive from ISIS is driving some of this. Yeah. Um, but some of this uh, was, to an extent, inevitable from the start if the once the U.S. committed itself to a mission of degrading and ultimately destroying ISIS the level of military investment in that project was insufficient from the beginning in a way that was widely remarked upon. And so, you know, this sort of incremental escalation um, in the absence of a broader kind of theory of the case, uh, I think is what I find troubling, not the escalation in and of itself. Um, and it's, it's striking to me that at the same time the administration is doing this, they are continuing to insist that their overall political military strategy, that is combining the Vienna talks on Syria with their efforts to flip the Russians on Assad with, you know, whatever's going on in Baghdad with respect to the, you know, reforms of the Iraqi government, that all of that is going swimmingly. And this is just a minor adjustment in the military piece that's going to make it all work out okay. I, I just don't see that. And do you think that it's, I mean, we're talking about slipping, but there's also the drip-drip factor here, that if you just add these troops incrementally in small numbers and each one doesn't look like a major commitment, it just looks like a slight tweaking or an escalation, does that then build up and suddenly we turn around and we've got 10,000 forces on the ground and, you know, the American public, who we assumed were war-weary, are kind of caught by surprise by that and didn't see it? Or or do we assume that, no, we're, they're perfectly fine sending these Well, I mean, it could be like the frog in the boiling water, right, right in terms right. of public opinion. But the other interesting <laughs> dynamic here is that they do these very, very minor adjustments. And the immediate reaction of Republicans, especially, you know, Republican hawks like John McCain is, it's insufficient. Not enough. And right. the presidential candidates say, no, we need more troops. 
And so to the extent that this Democratic president escalates um, and maybe leaves a legacy of escalation for the next president, the Republicans have nowhere to run complaining about that. But there's another possibility, which is that, you know, the pejorative way to describe it is the frog in the heating water. Um, But the less pejorative way to describe it is that uh, we are slowly amping up in response to um, the inadequacy of prior levels of commitment uh, and in response to continued demonstrations of the severity of the threat. And so this is a, you know, not slippery slope, but a uh, a, a slow, gradual, and test-as-you-go ramp up to the appropriate level of force in order to accomplish what everybody agrees to be the mission. You know, I, I think that's a fair point, Ben, that there may be a turning of the screw strategy here. Not that anyone in the administration has articulated that very well, but th- that's one I'm not sure what to call it yet. <laughs> there is another logic that could be applied to explain this, which is that there's been a f- some analysts like my colleague Ken Pollack have raised from the beginning the concern of catastrophic success. In other words, say that the anti-ISIS coalition goes in with massive force, ousts ISIS from its um, territory in Iraq and or Syria, then what? Right. Then you right. have that Robert Redford moment at the end of the, the candidate. What, what do we do now? What do we do now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When the political structure isn't in place to restore meaningful governance to this territory, and the ISIS operators will simply disperse. The way you know Saddam went underground and the Ba'ath Party went underground, these guys could go underground and reemerge later. Which President Obama absolutely knows, right, and has wanted to avoid. This is precisely why he said he doesn't want to have a massive troop commitment. So... I mean, what is he really getting at then? I mean, if he knows he doesn't want to have a ton of troops on the ground, because even if you, you know, destroy ISIS for the moment, then you've got to, you know, hold that territory so they don't come back and we don't want to be occupiers. So what does he really hope to gain by the addition of a few thousand troops? I mean, is it to buttress the Kurds? Is that what this is really about? Buy time for the Iraqis? Listening to Ash Carter yesterday, it sounded like the focus is on using special operators to gather very targeted intelligence on ISIS structure leadership operations so that um, the idea this is, is surge part two then. Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, you'd work with Iraqi or Kurdish forces who would go in, maybe clear an area and the special operators would go in, they'd get the hard drives, they'd, you know, get the ah. documents and that would be it. So it's an Intel gathering operation. This is what we didn't. This is exactly this is the this first Iraq war. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, Another way to describe this, you know, everybody likes to say that the administration has no strategy. Um, and um, I'd say a better major general is another never strategy. Never strategy, yeah. Um, very That's good. That's as close as you're going to get to singing today, isn't it? You are, you are so right. <laughs> but may, but maybe, maybe the point is that the administration's strategy is slippery slope. You know, that the idea is we're going to, Escalate without admitting it? Escalate without, well, just kind of ease into it over time and then, um, you know, do what needs to be done over time, but not do, you know, but but not do more, kind of inch down the slippery slope, uh, protesting along the way that you're not going to, you know, slide down a slippery slope. It's a novel approach to leadership. 
I think, to protest all the time while intending to, to go down that slope. Yeah. Okay, Ben, China is being so nice to us lately. Yeah, so we... You skeptics. So, you know, <laughs> this is... This is among all the uh, crow eating I have ever expected to do in my life, I have to say, was well down the list of expectations. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and I think I talked about this on the show, yeah. James Lewis at, at CSIS uh, made the remarkable claim that these uh, indictments that we had issued against the People's Liberation Army hackers had actually had a huge psychological impact in China, which had been um, really rattled by these indictments, which, of course, we have no power to effectuate because we have no ability to get custody of these guys, uh, and that this had precipitated a real change in Chinese thinking about cyber industrial espionage for economic purposes against U.S. companies and had led ultimately to, um, you know, the Xi Jinping-Obama joint statement uh, recently. So I put this in the category, I have to say, of interesting if true. Um, Whoa, if true. Yeah, but I had no data on it other than uh, Jim Lewis's comments. And, in and Jim is very connected to the administration. Very connected to the administration, very smart China cyber watcher. Uh, so, but so yesterday, uh, Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post runs a story sourced to various administration officials, reporting essentially the same thing, with a added component, which is that in the wake of those indictments, PLA espionage had plummeted against U.S. targets, U.S. industrial targets, and that the um, in fact, the People's Liberation Army capacity in this area had been largely dismantled, uh, that Xi Jinping had gone after uh, some PLA people for sort of moonlighting, and that this had been really consolidated in their civilian spy agency, which, though it still does a certain amount of uh, industrial espionage against U.S. targets, is much more focused on more conventional espionage targets like, say, the Office of Management and Budget. It's also uh, better at covering it up. Yes, much much more technically adept. So this is, I think, in, the, in large measure, a very good news story, if it's true, which is to say that U.S. Um, non-cyber response to cyber incidents has apparently a significant impact on Chinese behavior, and that suggests that the tool that the Obama administration has dangled out there but not used, which is targeted sanctions against individuals, could be very humiliating and uh, important for the Chinese to avoid. Uh, the bad news side of it is that it takes the, as Shane, you just pointed out, it takes the, uh, the big uh, activity out of the hands of the blundering PLA uh, incompetence who are loud and noisy and um, show their hands when they when they show up and puts it in the hands of a much more professional outfit that's a little bit more like NSA or the mm -hmm. Russians in the way they behave um, 
And so I think it's a, largely a good news story, but with that one caveat. And I also think it's really interesting just at a what this is something that would not have deterred the United States. And it does seem to have had a big impact on Chinese behavior. And I think you'd probably have to have somebody who was uh, conversant in con Chinese cultural, polit political culture to explain why they are so much more responsive to this kind of shaming than we would be. But I think it's really interesting. Well, it, it is fascinating. And, um, you know, Shane, I, I remember apropos of our first topic that you said not too long ago on the podcast that you anticipated uh, there would be U.S. boots on the ground uh, within a year. So your predictions proven correct. Ben predicted on the cyber hacking issue that um, the U.S. not pulling the trigger on sanctions would lead to an escalation in Chinese activity, and uh, and we seem to be seeing the opposite, at least in the short term. Um, and wah, wah. Well, look, you know, some some predictions come true and some do not, but I, I wonder whether this is a political culture question about shaming, as you suggested, Ben, or whether maybe this this U.S. demand just intersected well with bureaucratic politics in the Chinese regime. You know, it may be that Xi Jinping had his own reasons for wanting to take this away from the PLA and put it in a different place to reward and punish and consolidate control. Well, so, so two things. One is where it is bureaucratically and how much of it is happening are not necessarily the same question. And so it's possible that he wanted to take it away from the PLA, but, uh, you know, you still have a major economic incentive to do it. Now, you know, one of the questions is how much of it was really the PLA per se, and how much of it was individuals within the PLA who happened to command large units who were personally profiting from this. And so it could oh, dovetail... which would make it part of his anti-corruption. Exactly. Push. So it could dovetail with certain anti-corruption, uh, as well as personal control instincts on the part of Xi. Uh, the other possibility, you know, but if you believe uh, Jim Lewis, uh, there was a certain amount of shame and, uh, and feeling like they had been caught and... Uh, they were very, very opposed and anxious about the idea of sanctions, which they took, uh, you know, quite personally. Um, and, you know, when, when Iran indicts U.S. people who aren't there, we don't care. Right. Right. And when we indict Chinese people in the cyber arena who are not there, who we don't have custody over, they do seem to care. And that's just a really interesting... It's uh, fascinating. I don't know what it is, but it, it does seem to provide a lever in the cyber discussion that we haven't had up until now. I, I like this idea of there being kind of a confluence of the sanctions, but also what she is up to in these larger reforms. Just a couple of China analysts I was kind of bouncing this around with over the past couple of days. You know, there's there's a view on Xi Jinping that he is out to be the most powerful leader in recent Chinese history and that this isn't so much what's happening in China of a kind of gradual democratization as much as Xi Jinping consolidating power. And it's a view I think that some in the intelligence community share. And through that lens, you could see how this is a way of him wresting control, 
for some things out of the PLA, sidelining the PLA. He denounced actually this week a, a major series of reforms to the Chinese military, which is basically to sort of to make it look like more of a modern military, not so dependent on land forces, and to start inserting something that looks like a, a joint chiefs system, mm. like what we have here. And it's generally seen as him trying to build a modern, formidable military. To do that, he has to, to some degree, usurp or supersede authority from people in the PLA. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't work like our system, where he is undisputedly the civilian commander of the armed forces. And so this may have actually worked very well for him. And Notably, the the so-called cybercrime dialogue that's now going on this week in Washington between Chinese and American counterparts, there are no PLA members present for that. Mm. It is only law enforcement and security agencies, mm-hmm. uh, on our side being represented by um, the Attorney General and the Homeland Security Secretary. Very notable that the PLA is not there. And I just, I just wonder if maybe... That is very much by design. Is our military there? I believe they're not. That's interesting. So yeah. it's a civilian dialogue. And I have, you know, as, as long as the U.S. government doesn't sort of congratulate itself on helping to establish civilian control of the military right. in right. China, you know, let's Be not. Be careful what you wish for. Right. Let's not oversell this. But, uh, but that's fascinating development. Yeah. Yeah. Watch this space. Watch this space. Uh, okay, so uh, my wordplay, shamelessly, a story I wrote. Uh, so I did a this, brilliant story uh, by a certain Shane Harris, yeah, intrepid reporter. Intrepid is right. No slipping and sliding here. Um, yeah, so this is a story we have up this week, uh, or today on the Daily Beast. Um, a sad story to report, uh, but uh, there is an American man being held hostage. He's been there for more than a year by the Haqqani Network, uh, which, of course, is a Taliban-aligned group that operates on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, We had known about this individual uh, for some time and decided not to publish it, Uh, but in a letter to President Obama this week, Duncan Hunter, member of Congress, who's been very critical of the administration's hostage rescue efforts, um, not so subtly tipped that there are multiple Americans being held in this region more than uh, at least one who has been confirmed, and he used a plural uh, usage to describe the hostages in his piece, and we followed up, and he confirmed that, yes, he is meaning to point to others who were there. So we, we decided to report on it, but not to report the name or any details about the individual. Um, aside from it being a, you know, obviously a, a news story to find out that there is another American being held, I mean, I think it also raises this question of, how many other Americans might there be that are being overheld that we don't know about? I think a lot of attention sort of after the last ISIS hostages, if we want to call them that way, uh, died and Kayla Mueller being the last one, I could, it seemed like there was a bit of a sense that like, well, the hostage crisis of that summer where we were getting used to these beheading videos and this kind of ritualistic, you know, kind of killing and display um, was dying down. And I think it kind of shifted attention away from the fact that, no, there are actually still hostages in Syria. There are Americans in Iran that are being held by the state. There are people who are being held in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the administration has been trying uh, to streamline its efforts to get them back and has appointed a, uh, a new uh, hostage envoy, Jim O'Brien, a career diplomat. They've set up a fusion cell that the FBI is in charge of. But this really becomes like a test case now. It's like if there, there are still Americans actively being held by groups, including ones that have a history of negotiating for prisoner release. The Haqqani uh, traded Bo Bergdahl for five Taliban fighters. We did that trade. It was very controversial. Um, so there is, in a, 
there is a hope of getting these people back, but it really does put, I think, you know, pressure on the administration to say, frankly, you know, what are you doing to get them back? And, and, you know, how close do you think you are to being successful? And we just don't get a lot of transparency into that effort, I'm afraid. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, one of the interesting things about having a little distance from the, that horrific period of ISIS beheadings of hostages and attempted rescues and ISIS murders of hostages is, you know, it, that it reminds us that these different groups, some states, some non-state actors, take hostages for different reasons, have very different approaches to how they treat them and what they want. Yep. You know, so for the Haqqanis, it's partly political, right? Because yep. they're allies of the Taliban. But it's also about money, yes. right? Because they need money to maintain their own political influence. And and so it's a little bit more like a tradition, traditional, I hate to say that, international hostage taking. Yeah. Um, the Iranian situation, of course, is, is completely different. It really seems that the Iranians are deliberately arresting Americans or dual nationals to use them as leverage in their diplomatic relationship with Washington, which is cynical and horrific. Yeah. And then ISIS is a is a different story entirely, who don't seem to care about, you know, relationships or resources. They just like to have people that they can put on video, which is horrific in an entirely different way. So it, it's a challenge for U.S. policy even to tell Americans how it can approach these very different cases. So, so that's an interesting question. I mean, is it right to think about these different categories as the same policy problem, which is, you know, sort of Americans being held hostage? Right. Or is it, you know, or should you think of them as, as a highly discrete policy problems, i.e., when ISIS gets you there's not really anything we're going to be able to do. They're going to behead you in some grisly video, and you can go through a charade of negotiation, but it's actually uh, useless. The Iran Although I think other governments would say that they have negotiated with ISIS and paid have and gotten with, people back. With I don't ISIS? Know. I yeah, thought I mean, with ISRA they've gotten No, there have been ISIS hostages who, who came back. In fact, one of the ways that, you know, we at journalists, but also U.S. officials, know more about some of the inner workings and what happened to the American hostages is from the hostages who were let go. It's never been publicly acknowledged they were ransomed, but it's a, there would be no other explanation for how they got out. So, um, given that there does not seem to be a desire to do that with U.S., right, right the U.S. severed head is much more valuable than the ransom which we don't pay anyway. Um, I, well, I mean, we don't pay it. Right, well, somebody does. But, um, I mean, can are these the same problem, or are they just totally different problems? I think they're different problems. They're, or they're, dis, they're discrete problems. And, and, look, this is one of the things that, when we've gone round and round with administration officials about decisions of whether or not to publish information about hostages, the pushback you always get invariably is any information about a hostage only makes it harder to get them out because it makes them more valuable and it complicates things. And that is that is not provable, number one. And there's actually evidence that, that would suggest the contrary. So, for instance, Caitlin Coleman, that is a public case of a woman who is being held with her Canadian husband and their, and their, baby, their baby, you said in yeah. the story. Wow, yeah, that was just awful. Um, her case is public. Her family has made it public. They decided to go public. 
Um, they, the, Coleman and Boyle have appeared in a video released by Haqqani pleading for their governments to intervene. Uh, and there's been a lot of reporting around um, efforts that some uh, in the military have made over the years getting close to what they believe was a possible uh, ransom arrangement that then got, you know, pushed aside by, by other forces in the government. My only point being is that it's pretty clear to me, based on my own reporting, is that the Haqqani network has signaled they very much want to negotiate for the release of this woman and her family. They want something in return. They're very motivated by the Bergdahl uh, trade. They released that video not long after Bergdahl was swapped. Um, and I think that, you know, in the case of this other American man who's being held, there's every reason to believe that they would be open to a negotiation because that's their M.O. Right. I mean, even ISIS, ISIS did make for the American hostage a ransom demand. It was preposterous because it was tens of millions of dollars. It was not realistic. But, you know, to your point, Ben, they clearly made a determination that it was more worth their while to use these hostages as propaganda tools than to ransom them, especially because we weren't going to pay a ransom. But al-Nusra, there right. is an American who was freed by al-Nusra, and my reporting suggests that intermediaries paid a ransom for him. Right. So, okay, so it's it's interesting. We have a range of actors here, and we have a, a quite a number of cases, I'm sorry to say, yeah. over the last years, and that suggests social scientists that there's a role for you. Um, do that taxonomy of hostage-taking groups and take a look at this in a systematic way. What are successful strategies for Western governments to get their people back? Uh, and what works in which circumstances? Policymakers are waiting for you. And in fact, I, I, they, they are supposed to be actively exploring those ideas. Um, they really won't tell us how much they're exploring them. We need and... academic hostage-taking specialists. Well, the trouble is there's a data deficit, right? Because we often don't know what the terms of release were with respect to, you know, you sort of have a sense that... She a, knows. Well, <laughs> yeah. Do you know, like, how much the French pay for for their people? We don't know the amount that they pay. I mean, I think... It's not seems to matter. Range, no, it right? matters. Well, I mean, ISIS, I forget how many tens of millions they wanted for the American hostages. There's no way that the French pay that much for their hostages. Like, that was just like a, like a, a fake, almost, right. by ISIS. Was, right, and remember, ISIS negotiated... Uh, for the Jordanian pilot after they had killed him. Yes, that's um, also And true. so, you know, what they say they're negotiating about and what they're really negotiating about can be very different. Well, I mean, but there's also another case that's sort of something to consider. Um, the fourth American hostage, uh, Kayla Mueller, who never appeared in a video, uh, who we now know was subjected to awful sexual abuse at the hands, possibly even of Baghdadi himself, um, it's not clear to me what their ultimate intentions were with Kayla Mueller, but it's pretty clear they were not to put her in a video and behead her. Mm -hmm. So were they using her merely for their own devices, or was there some plan for her? Mm -hmm. I think that these groups, they, they approach this on a somewhat of a case-by-case -case basis, and it's, it's another reason why I think that the, you know, the general law enforcement slash administration line of, don't ever write about this, don't ever do it, you'll jeopardize them, you don't know that. Right. right. Uh, it is just that it's not something that we can prove. So, on to happier topics. Object lessons. Ben, do you want to go first? I will go first. My object lesson, I want user help in figuring out what this object is. The other day, I posted... <laughs> but you have an unknown object? I have an unknown object. Is, let it, me, is it flying? Let me explain. I don't know. 
Oh, Let me explain. Ooh. You may be FO. I posted on Lawfare our year-end fundraising uh, email that, um, you know, and you all should, of course, go on the Lawfare site and make your, you know, your year-end contribution to Lawfare. Um, but I listed 10 reasons why you should keep Lawfare in your end-of-year giving thoughts. And reason number 10 was that each dollar you, you give is a separate entry in our grand prize drawing for, and I described the prize as the uh, Handmaiden of Power starter kit. <laughs> and so my object lesson is the Handmaiden of Power starter kit. But the trouble is, I'm not sure I know what is in a handmade mm, wow. power. What is in it? Uh, you need a, a an op-ed Mad Lib. Oh yeah. That will produce an op-ed supportive of U.S. government surveillance policy. Uh, you need a, a direct line, a, a speed dial to five key administration officials who you call to find out what you're supposed to say. Okay, so these are two proposed items in the Object of Power starter kit. Uh, you can tweet. Uh, Tweet to us uh, objects to include in the Handmaiden of Power starter kit at, at RATL Security. And let's use the hashtag Handmaiden of Power. I like it. Um, it's a little long, but it's it a little room. You know, include objects to be part of this yeah, week's objects. Send us photos lesson. of objects that you would actually put in such a starter kit. Yeah. I Love like it. it. I like it very much. Okay. Uh, tomorrow, do you want to go next? Sure. Well, my object is actually this digital recorder that's sitting right in front of us, oh. <laughs> and this is this is a pro- mm, okay. no, it's a program note for for listeners. Um, we we have heard you uh, that you are having trouble hearing us. Um, we understand that our our audio quality, particularly in the last couple of episodes, has been uh, less high quality than desired, and so we're trying a new recording tech this week, and we need to hear from you. Uh, how does it sound? Is it working better for you? Uh, and and uh, and we really do appreciate the feedback, and we need your feedback. So uh, you don't care what this digital recorder looks like. It's very fancy. It's it's pretty cool, but uh, but really we want to know how it sounds and how it works. Let us ha- know. Hashtag, can you hear us now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so my object, actually, it's a it's an object people already may be familiar with, but it's it's a terrific novel that I'm reading uh, right now. Uh, it's not a new book, but it's going to be um, Fatherland by Robert Harris. Have you guys heard of this book? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, I only got turned on to this recently, um, actually listening to another podcast. Uh, but it, for those who don't know, Fatherland is a novel set uh, in Berlin in 1964 in which uh, the Nazis won uh, and essentially rule uncontested from... You know, roughly the border of Spain in the west, up underneath Scandinavia, and then all the way to the east of the Urals, and have taken Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, and don't occupy the United States or Great Britain, but essentially are the most powerful country on earth, and like, you know, the British people are all the maids, and the French people are all the cooks, and like, basically everybody's working for Germany. Uh, but, uh, I won't spoil too much of the book, because it's a bit of a mystery, but it follows this one SS uh, officer, basically like a homicide detective, uh, who gets onto a conspiracy involving some high party members, uh, and basically uncovers something from Germany's past that, uh, it is astonishing that Germans don't know about and starts to bring it to light. It's just, a, I just, I love the idea of this sort of 
reimagined fiction. I mean, this is the Man in High Castle is sort of a similar theme that's on Netflix right now. But one of the things that I just really like, love, and I laugh about all the time is the extent to which in the book, um, the Germans are absolutely obsessed with comparing all of their monuments and all of their architecture to other countries that they've defeated and making sure that everyone knows how much bigger it is. So they have their ar- their own Ark of Triumph. And it's Mine like, is bigger than yours, Shane. It, yeah, it's very much like this, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's, there's a scene where they're taking a bus tour, and the tour guide, and everyone's just dour and awful, but is like, you know, giving these quotes about this Arc, uh, like, 97 Arc de Triomphe from Paris would fit inside this Arc of Triumph. Uh. And, you know, our, you know, main avenue of the Fallen, whatever, is two kilometers longer than the Champs-Élysées and half a kilometer wider or whatever. And I just love the idea that the Nazis are just absolutely obsessed with just how much bigger their things are than everyone else. They rule uncontested over the world and are completely insecure about it. It's just a wonderful little device. Fatherland. Fatherland. I am Hans, and this is Franz, and (laughs) we are here to pump pump you you up. up. (laughs) Pump you and your ego. Don't feel bad about your Ark of Triumph. It's large. Long. (laughs) Also, the architecture just sounds awful. Well, it is a rule of authoritarian architecture that it's always horrible. Yep. It's just, the Nazi flags are twice as big as the European Union flags. It's just great. And everything is phallic. It's just wonderful. It's really just a really lovely book. Go check it out. Uh, okay, so that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to other shows in all of our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. When you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a five-star review and comments. It really helps us out. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, as you know, at R-A-T-L Security. Tweet at us the ideas for the Handmaiden package. Let us know how the sound is. Do we have a non-sponsor this week, brother? Our non-sponsor this week is the Hakani Network. Oh, yes. yes! Which has not sent us any of the proceeds of any of their uh, ransoms, kidnapping yeah. ransoms. Uh, Not a penny. And so we encourage airstrikes against the Harkani (laughs) Network. We encourage special forces raids. We have some in the neighborhood. Against all forces that don't sponsor rational security. Yes, yes, including Raytheon. Yeah. The Raytheon, you're due for a special ops drone strike, my friend. Oh, my goodness, guys. No, they love this. Trust me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Ben, Tamara, and Shane. <laughs> not, not Tamara. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it was performed somewhat by us. And, of course, Sophia Yan. We really should have gotten her to record uh, Slip Slide No Way on the Yeah. Program. Special just for this. Yeah. That would be really nice. Okay. Well, on behalf of Ben and Tamara, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.